the second reading comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 12. Uh, It's in your booklets or on page 1087 of the Pew Bible. Finally then, brothers, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you must walk and please God as you are doing, do so even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's work, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, so that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honour, not with lustful desire, like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offences. As we also previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to sanctification. Therefore, the person who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who also gives you the Holy Spirit. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you, because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers, to do so even more. To seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, as we commanded you, so that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening once again. Uh, I'm working from the life-changing booklet. that we've got, we're on page 30. Uh, it's a slightly different translation there. It's the New International Version here. It's called the Holman in your lap if you've got a black Bible. And I did mention to Sarah that I would uh, talk about Table for Eight coming up in two weeks' time. And so are you looking to sign up for tonight, Sarah? So an opportunity to get, gather in one another's homes and share a meal together. Well, I hope you've got 1 Thessalonians 4 open in front of you, and I want to ask you the question, who was it, and when was it, that you were taught how to lead a holy life? For me, a lot of that took place when I was in my early 20s. I'd become a Christian at the age of 15, uh, but I was living in a boys' boarding house, and I thought holy living, or a life that was pleasing to God, was just cleaning up the act of the boys around me. So I would swear a little less and think that was holiness. I would drink a little less and think that was pleasing to God. I would go a little less far with girls and think that was what God wanted from me. Well, it wasn't until I was about 20 that God started to reveal to me and teach me what it was that he desired from me and how I ought to lead a life pleasing to him. Uh, my mum uh, got some, a packet of CDs back in the days of CDs, uh, and they were some talks by a gentleman called Philip Jensen, whom I hadn't heard of. And the talks were entitled Love, Sex and Marriage. And these talks were planted on our living room table, and they sat there for months and months. At the time, I was dating a girl who wasn't a Christian, and I would often invite her to come and stay over at our house. 
And I don't think my mum knew how to have the conversation with me. So these cedars just sat there. And they sat there and they sat there. And one day I thought, I didn't tell mum, but I picked them up and I listened to them. And I almost fell off my chair. I couldn't believe that God's word spoke with such clarity about how, I'm or how we ought to relate to one another. I couldn't believe that God spoke about how I should use my body, about our sexual conduct or misconduct. I was blown away. But that wasn't the last time I was ever taught how to lead a holy life. I've needed to hear that again and again and again. I've, I've read books about it. I've, I've gone on conferences about living godly lives. I've stayed up late with Christian brothers and sisters who've been chatting to me and talking through the details. What does a holy life look like? I'm not sure if you've ever had the experience of going on a conference or a church weekend away and you know your, your whole life sort of feels like it's transformed. You, you, you stop swearing and you start calling everyone brother or sister. You know, you get really into it and it's a weekend on fellowship and so you, you make a commitment that you're never going to cause a brother or sister to stumble ever again. But then as you're driving back down from that mountaintop experience, you, you turn the radio on and you start singing slightly less wholesome songs than you were while you're up the mountain. Uh, and then you, you, know, you turn on the TV and you, your senses become a little bit dull and a bit numb to what all those convictions you had. And by Wednesday morning, you're in the morning tea room at work and you're gossiping and complaining about that colleague who doesn't clean up their coffee cup. We need encouragement. We need spurring on to keep on living holy lives. And so this sermon is like a life coach coming alongside you saying, if you know how to lead a holy life, if you've been taught, then keep on going. But maybe you've never been taught at all. So maybe this will be an opportunity for you to understand what a holy life looks like. No matter which camp you're in, God's word to us tonight is to keep on going. Keep pressing on, seeking to lead a holy life. And that's our big idea for tonight. Keep on living holy lives, pleasing to God. And Paul focuses it in two areas, in our sexual purity and in our love for one another. So we're going to start by asking the question, why lead holy lives? And then we're going to think through what is a holy life? What does it look like? And then, as Paul does, we'll narrow in and focus on our sexual conduct and as if a, a contrast to perhaps our immorality, the idea of uh, conducting ourselves in love to one another and care for one another. So that's our, our first point. We'll begin by thinking through why do we live holy lives? Uh, not sure the last time someone told you how you should live. I don't know how you feel about being taught how to live. Perhaps it seems a little elementary, a little familial, you know, like back when your parents used to tell you what you could and can't do. Well, Paul makes no excuses in verse 1 of our uh, reading, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Paul's given the Thessalonians already a number of reasons why you should live a holy life, why you should listen as you're taught how to lead holy lives. See if you remember them. Chapter 1, 
lead a holy life because the word of God came to you with deep conviction, with power and with the Holy Spirit. Now you should lead a holy life, end of chapter 1, because Thessalonians, you had turned from God to uh, turn from idols to serve the living God. Chapter 2. They should turn, uh, they should worship God and lead holy lives because they are dearly loved. Dearly loved by God, dearly loved by those he taught. Chapter 3, they should lead holy and godly lives because they have begun to be persecuted for the lives and the commitments that they've made to Jesus. And so God's solution is not to dial down the holiness that has led to their persecution, but to turn it up. Probably the greatest reason, though, is here in front of us in our passage. Verse 1, have a look at it again. We instructed you, Paul says, how to live in order to please God. And that's a sure sign, isn't it, that you belong to God. That if he tells you what pleases him, you long to do it just for that very reason. Just like you might choose to act in a way that you know will put a smile on the face of someone that you love. Well, Paul says to the Thessalonians, you're already doing it. Keep it up. But he continues, verse 1, Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. These teachings on how to live holy lives, well, Paul says, it's not just my ideas on moral purity. Uh, this is not just, you know, Paul's bandwagon. No, these are authoritative teachings. From who? Verse 2. By the authority of the Lord Jesus. That is, these teachings on how to lead holy lives, they've come from those who were taught by Jesus. They've been passed on by those who were with him and taught by him. And so these are Jesus' words on how to lead holy lives. So what does a life that pleases God look like? This last week, I attended a first birthday party. I'm not sure if you've ever had the pressure of trying to buy a present for a one-year-old before in your life. But it is terrifying to think, what is going to please a little one-year-old child? Well, I traipsed around the city, and in hindsight, I should have got him a little box of scrunched-up paper and ribbons because he would have preferred that much more than the Duplo that I eventually ended up getting him. But when it comes to God, it's no such surprise. It's not a mystery about what pleases him. Uh, it's not as if God is mute like a one-year-old and can't tell you what he wants. No, God has been very clear about what pleases him. And he told us here in verse 3, have a read. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. We don't use that word too much these days, sanctified, made holy, set apart. It's the, uh, it's the idea of being personally, personally dedicated to God and to God's interests. Sanctification is a process, not a, a designation. If you are a brother or sister in Christ, if you have put your trust in Jesus, then you are holy in God's sight. That is, God has taken the holiness of Jesus and he has put it on you. And he has taken all your uncleanness, your sin, and your shame, and he's taken it off you, and he's put it on 
you trust in Jesus, you are holy. Sanctification is the process of becoming what you already have been made in Jesus. It is an ongoing work and you will be being sanctified until the day you die. That is a wonderful thing about being Christian. Always growing right to the very end. Well, uh, our sanctification is about growing up into the holiness we've already been given. A friend uh, from our evening church, or sorry, a friend from this church, I've spoken at a few services today. A friend from this service was telling me about how they became a Christian. They became a Christian later in their life. And when they told a, uh, a former boyfriend that they'd become a Christian, you know what, they said, what he said to her? He said, poor you. What a waste. What a waste. All that you've given away, all that could be yours, all the good things that you could have, but you have given it up and you are going to be a Christian. That's because our world views holiness as like St. Peter or St. James in our stained glass windows with dinner plates around their heads. It's an alien sort of concept to many of us. We, we think of it kind of like, you know, teaching a dog something that is foreign to being a dog, like teaching a dog to sit at a dinner bowl and not eat from the plate in front of it, or like shaping a hedge in a perfect rectangle. It's not something it's meant to be, but to be holy is to be rigid and straight and refined. Well, when you come to the Bible, God has a completely other view of holiness. When you come to the Bible, it says holiness is about coming to life. Holiness is becoming what God made you to be. It's growing into that which you're going to be forever and ever. Holiness is the best thing you can do for yourself. It is about becoming truly human. Well, to be sanctified is to become increasingly freed from sin and filled with love. And if you ask me, that is what I want to be. That is the kind of life I want to really be living. And here's the comforting thing about our sanctification. If you turn back with me to uh, chapter 3, if you're in the booklet, turn back two pages. If you're in the Bible, just look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Here's the comforting thing about sanctification. It's God's work. It's firstly God's work. Paul prays this prayer for the Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 6. May God strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Paul begins by praying that the Thessalonians, that you and I would be made holy. And then he goes on in chapter 4 to say, now get on with the business of becoming holy. It's God's work first, but it's also our work. God will do it, and we need to work hard at it. And so we're meant to pursue sanctification as of first importance in our life. But there are seasons of our lives, aren't there, where we get all caught up with what God's will might be for us. You know, Early on in life, you're, you're thinking, what's God's will for, for what university degree I get? Or what city I should live in? Or who, I, who should I date? What is God's will for who I should pursue for marriage? 
as we go on in life, we think, what's God's will for where I should live, where I should raise my children, what school should I send my children to? We move right through to retirement. What is God's will for when I retire, where I retire, what I do with my retirement? We ask all of these questions. But in many senses, these questions are somewhat peripheral to what God's will is because God has been very explicit about what his will is for you. Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And so there's probably lots of uni degrees you can do as long as you pursue holiness as you do them. There's maybe lots of different people you could marry, but be holy as you pursue that person. Uh, There's probably lots of places you could live. Be holy. There's lots of things you could do with your retirement, but be holy, be sanctified as you do it. That is God's will for you. Today, Paul wants to focus particularly on our holiness in regards to our sexual conduct and our relationships with one another in brother and sister ways. So let's go to our second point today, and that is be holy in sexual purity. Verse 3 continues. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. The word sexual immorality is the word porneia. Porneia is is the word for any uh, participation in any unlawful or prohibited sexual behavior. And it's not the law of the land. No, it is God's law. And what is God's law or God's standard of sexual behavior? Well, it might surprise you to find out that God is very pro-sex. He is very much for sex. But it is sex within the safety, security, lifelong commitment of a committed marriage. That is the place for sex. God is all about marriage and sex is for marriage. That is the place where sex is to be enjoyed. And God does not discriminate because all sex outside of marriage, and that is marriage as God defines it, not as the society around us defines it, union between one man and one woman entered into for life. God is very indiscriminate in all sex outside of that perfect re- that relationship where sexual activity is to take place. That means that Straight sex and gay sex outside of marriage is wrong. One-night stands, long-term de facto sexual relationships are wrong. Young, old, middle-aged, any sexual activity outside of marriage is immoral in God's sight. God does not discriminate. And so if these are God's standards, then it is radically, radically different to the world that we live in. So which is why we need to apply verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the, lust like the pagans who do not know God. As I mentioned earlier, I became a Christian when I was 15 in a boys' boarding school. And I thought holiness was just cleaning up the act of the guys around me being a little bit better than them. But that is a very, very low bar. Don't let the world around you define what is acceptable 
in terms of sexual standards. We must not let the TV shows we watch, the music that we sing, the, the magazines that we read, or the, the banter of promiscuous friends on a Monday morning set the standards for what is acceptable in terms of our sexual conduct. You are a child, a son, a daughter of the living God, and he has told you his standards for sex. So we must uphold them and honor them. Sexual immorality at its core is actually about self-gratification. It's about taking, stealing from others what doesn't belong to you. As verse 6 makes clear for us. And in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such things. It's great, um, it's great to have a few couples here at Church by the Bridge recently getting engaged. Uh, it's an exciting time for them. But even in engagement, God's standards for sexual conduct are still the same. There are two, place, there are two categories. There is marriage and there is those who aren't married. And, ma- and sex is for that, that season of life. And so it doesn't matter how close you get to that point of marriage until you are standing up the front of this church saying, I do to that man or that woman, then you are to honor that other person in sexual purity. And so I say to them uh, that, that this is a, a recommended standard. Uh, until that person becomes your husband or your wife, they could potentially be someone else's husband or wife. And so you want to honor that person. You want to treat them with absolute purity. You want to be able to stand on their potential future wedding day, if it's not yours, and look their spouse in the eye and say, I honor your husband or I honor your bride. God has called us to radically different standards. But if you're going to choose to be a law unto yourself and to do things your own way, well, then it's not just your brothers or sisters that you might be sinning against, but as verse 6b makes clear, it would be to sin against God himself. Verse 6b, the Lord will punish all those who commit such things as he told you and warned you before. It's important to say that not everyone in a room like this will have been sexually active by their own choice choosing. And so, it is, I hope, in some ways comforting to those who have been abused in such a way that God will avenge those who have been wronged. God will make right that sort of behavior that has happened against you. And as we think about the end of the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, uh, as, it, as the, the final report has been passed down, we can know that justice has only begun to be done to those who sinned against others in such a way. And that we can mark God's word that even if the Royal Commission missed some people, which no doubt it did, they have not escaped God's judgment. And God knows and God has seen and God has said that he will punish all who act in such a way. So there you have it. God's word on sexual purity. And if you're going to disregard it, reject it and say, well, these are just olden day standards of a former era uh, or, or this is just, you know, Paul, the single guy who was desperate and dateless and so no wonder he had those kind of standards. Well, Paul says, it's not me you're rejecting. Verse 8, 
does not mean but anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives life, his Holy Spirit. So, brothers and sisters, as the world around you keeps descending into deeper and deeper, uh, deeper and deeper sexual freedoms and uncontrolled cravings and lusts, we live in a world that is hugely over-sexualized. God's call on you, on me, is to keep on striving to live holy lives, holy and pleasing lives, because you weren't called to engage like the world does. No, verse 7, God called you to live a holy life. And God has given you, verse 8, his Holy Spirit to empower you to do so. The same Holy Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead, the same Holy Spirit who helped Jesus fight against all the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. God's powerful spirit lives in you to empower you to lead a holy life and to keep on with God's standards and specifications. We now exist to offer a better alternative and a more fulfilling way. Paul moves to our third and final point, and that is be holy in love for one another. Have you ever heard about the idea of the expulsive power of a greater love? It's basically that our hearts are made to love things. And we will love all sorts of things. And sometimes we will love the wrong things. We will love the wrong people or the wrong objects or the wrong ideas. And the idea is the best way to get rid of wrong love is with the power of a better love, a greater love. And if sexual immorality is about a wrong, misplaced love, self-gratifying love, well, Paul gives the Thessalonians a wonderful alternative, which is the expulsive power of a greater love, of loving brothers and sisters and caring for others, a love that is self-giving, that it goes beyond the uh, confines of just the region that they're, that they're living in. So Paul knew that the Thessalonians were already practicing this kind of better and bigger love, and he just wants to encourage them more and more. Verse 9, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. Why? Two reasons. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. How are they taught by God? Well, we know the promises of the Old Testament that no longer will a man teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for all of them will know me, from the least to the greatest. Because God's Holy Spirit comes to live in us and God's Spirit teaches us to love others and love those who also love Jesus. So God's Spirit teaches us to love. And also, verse 10, you do love all, the fam all God's family. These Thessalonians were already loving, but Paul says it's so important. So keep on going more and more. And I do love this about God's way of love. Because as we said before, if sexual immorality is hidden and harmful and it's about self-gratification, self-love and it's about wronging one or, or two people being wronged, well then God's way of other person, brotherly love, it's public it's broad it's sweeping, it's self-giving and it, it sweeps around the whole region of Macedonia see what he says, verse 10 in fact you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. It's like saying, Church by the Bridge, 
you are so great at loving New South Wales. Keep it up. How do they do it? How do they love such a region? They were showing hospitality. They were giving generously to the work of the gospel. Well, verse 11 and 12, Paul says, keep on loving, and he gets really practical about what that kind of love might look like. Verse 11 and 12, Paul gives us three ways that we can act lovingly and two consequences of that kind of love. Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. I've been pondering this week, how does leading a quiet life help me to love others well? Well, that one sentence, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, has kicked me in the guts this week. Because, as you well know, Rachel Dale has been very unwell this week. And I've been thinking, I want to help Paul. I want to serve the Dale family. But I've got no room in my calendar to serve them. I'm fully booked. There's no wiggle room. There's no space to love others when they come into a time of need. And so I wonder if leading a quiet life is about leaving room, margin, for loving people leaving space in your time, your schedule, your calendar, so that when need arises, you can serve and address the needs of others. Not when it suits you, but when it works for them. I've also been pondering uh, what leading a quiet life might look like in terms of our relationships and the nature of our relationships. So my second child, George, has just started kindergarten. Now, uh, you may have seen some parents gathering in a playground after morning drops. But uh, beginning kindergarten is a very social time. This is like we are establishing friendships and relationships. These could potentially be lifelong friends. And, uh, and I know that I'm pretty good at meeting people first time and, and getting to know people and smiling and being friendly. And, and I was getting so caught up in the middle of the uh, after-school drop-off chat times, I was really networking around and meeting everyone, that one of the mums there suggested that I should become class mum. Class mum is the liaison point between the teacher and the rest of the parents. And I realised, I'm stuck in the middle of this. I'm too much in the centre and I'm chit-chatting with everyone, connecting people. And I thought, actually, you know what, I feel like God is more at work around the edges. You see, in the middle, you're so busy, you're, you're caught up, you're talking to everyone. Around the edges, you can see where there's need. I feel like God is really at work around the edges. And so I've tried to step back a little bit in my morning drop-offs, you know, get on my phone and walk out uh, so that I don't have to talk. No, no. But, uh, but just trying to keep a little, bit, a little bit out from the middle so that I'm conscious of where God is at work and where I can love others. So make it your ambition to lead quiet lives as you love others. Next, second idea, Paul says, Verse 11, you should mind your own business. Did you know that was a Bible verse? I just thought it was a playground comeback. But there you go, it's a Bible verse. And the fact that it is should be conviction enough. It should compel you to make sure that you don't meddle in the affairs of others. I've been speaking to some um, sisters in different stages of life as I've prepared this sermon tonight. And I spoke to Sue from Mitchell Bay. And Sue is an older uh, woman who's been widowed, and she spoke about how she has 
taken up the opportunity to mentor younger women. Because as Christian brothers and sisters, we're not disinterested in the lives of others. No, we care about one another's holiness and, and the way that we live. And so Sue takes an interest in other people's lives, but she doesn't meddle in their affairs. No, she uses that opportunity to spur her on to think about her own godliness and the example she's setting for those sisters. And so, mind your own business. Don't meddle in the affairs of others, but care for one another and let your care for one another drive you to seek to lead a holy and pleasing life to God. And thirdly and lastly, verse 11, Paul says, work with your hands just as you told me. It appears that there were some in Thessalonica who decided to give up their day job and just look at the skies and wait for Jesus to return. They were leeching off everyone else. They'd given up serving others with their hands and they were twiddling their thumbs. And when there's nothing to do, you find yourself getting into mischief. So Paul says, if you've got the opportunity or the capacity, get going with your hands. Work with your hands so that you've got something to share with others. Get involved in serving here at church, in ministering to other people. If you've got, if you've got work, use that work as an opportunity to give to others so that you can supply for them in their needs. These kind of loving lives have two consequences. Verse 12 they win the respect of those on the outside and they care for the needs of those on the inside. That is, it stops you or I from leeching off others and it gives us an opportunity to provide for others' needs and care for them. Well, in conclusion, I don't know who it was or when it was that you were taught how to lead a holy life. But Paul, God, says... God says, keep on going. Press on with leading a holy life. God has not called you. It is not God's will that you should be conservative. It is not God's will that you should be old-fashioned. It is God's will that you should be made like Him, that you should become more and more holy. It is God's will that you grow to be what you will be forever and ever. That is a high calling on your lives, brothers and sisters, and that is God's will for you, that you would pursue leading a holy life that is pleasing to God in sexual purity and in the way you love your brothers and sisters. Let's pray that it would be so. God, our Heavenly Father, May you make our love increase and overflow for one another and for everyone else, just as we have been loved by others. May you strengthen our hearts so that we will be blameless and holy in the presence of you, our God and Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Help us to keep on living holy lives, pleasing to you, in sexual purity and in love for one another. Amen.